Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Uh, We're going to pick up where we left off last week, Mark chapter 11, finishing out that chapter and then kind of moving our way into chapter 12. We've been kind of going through the book of Mark for quite some time now, and we're going to kind of be getting closer and closer and closer towards the end of that. Um, You know, over the next two weeks, uh, you may not be aware of this or not, but the next two weeks are going to be kind of odd because uh, the way way we're positioned here at Metaview is we get to celebrate two fall breaks, really. I mean, because you've got a whole group of Bradley County people who get one week off, and then you get a whole group of Hamilton County people who get another week off, and they just can't seem to get on the same schedule. So uh, there's going to be, you know, a lot of people going on vacation because you've been, you've been having to go to school for like four weeks now, and it's awful. And you're not used to it, and so you got to get a break in there. So it made me start thinking about vacation again. All, all, like I'm always thinking about vacation, really. And uh, there's some things that you that maybe you want to do on vacation. Maybe they're a have to for you. Anybody in here, you're like, a, I have to have a book on vacation. Like, I just want a book. I, my wife needs like seven, like she reads so fast. Like, I just need a book. I just want to sit there. I don't want anyone to talk to me for like four days straight. Just let me read, right? There's some of you. Uh, there's some of you that are like foodies, right? And you're like, when we go here, we're going to find the most hole-in-the-wall place to eat, and it's going to be the best food ever. You know, no one's ever heard of it, and it's just packed, right? So uh, there's some of you who like to do that. There's some of you who are all about the adventure, you're like, let's try something new. Maybe scuba diving or parasailing or, you know, something just crazy that you can only do on vacation. And then there's some of you like me who love to play putt-putt, right? I mean, putt-putt golf, it's like one of the greatest things ever invented, really. Uh, I think I played putt I think uh, on our honeymoon, did we play like three times? Yeah, we did. All right. So, you know, I was like, what do you want to do tonight? Uh, Putt-putt, yeah, like, let's go back. You know, and putt-putt really, it, what makes a putt-putt game or an obstacle course is, is the obstacles, right? Like, there's got to be bridges you got to, you know, putt over. There's got to be, like, large mouths of things you have to putt through. Like, there's all these obstacles that you really are, are excited about. You're, really? No, none of you? Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, putt-putt's awesome, right? So the thing about obstacles, whoa, got to hide from the table there. Uh, the thing about the obstacles is there's obstacles in life. And an obstacle is a thing that blocks one's way or prevents or hinders progress, right? We know what an obstacle is. And whether we like realize it or not, there are obstacles in our life that are also spiritual obstacles. There's things that hinder our progress in the faith. And, and more importantly, there's things, there's obstacles that get in the way of our repentance. Being able to say, God, I, I'm wrong. And I really want to change. And so we realize that there are obstacles in life. And, and there's just one major obstacle of repentance. And it's that it's the object of submitting to Christ's authority. And this is really the issue that we're going to see as we get into Scripture this morning. That these Pharisees, these scribes, these teachers, these synagogue leaders, I mean, they're really struggling with the fact that Jesus has this authority. I mean, we, we've seen him come in, right? He came in, 
triumphal entry. He walked in, he looked at the temple, and then he left. The next day, he's on his way back to the temple, and he curses the fig tree, and he goes in, he starts flipping tables. And now he's back in the temple again in, in this section of Scripture another day. And this is the last day of his life as he's moving towards the cross, right, his, his earthly life. And so now he's in there, and now he's teaching. And they're asking him, why do you think you can do these things? Who gave you such authority? This is really an obstacle for all people because really coming to a point of submitting to the authority of Christ is where we all need to come in our faith. Uh, one famous atheist, his name was Richard Dawkins. It is Richard Dawkins. said, he was asked, is there anything God could do to get you to believe in him? He said, no. If God showed up in the room, I would want to know what sort of psychological or naturalistic explanation is going on here. He, he was so turned off to God that he was, he was wanting to say, no, there's, if, if, if he showed up face to face, I wouldn't submit to him. There's another guy who, who coined the phrase agnostic. If you don't know the difference between atheist and agnostic, agnostic is lazy, right? Like that's the lazy version. Like atheist says there is no God. Agnostic says, eh, you never know, right? So they live as if there is no God. His name is Aldous Huxley, and this is what he says. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. For myself, is no doubt for my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We, get this, we objected to the morality of Christianity because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I mean, this guy's honest. He basically says, you know what? I have, a, I have a purpose behind not believing in God because if I do believe in God, then I have to submit to his authority. And if I submit to his authority, then that means it changes the things that I want to do. And so he just says, well, then I just won't believe. I'll just come up with this term. I mean, if, I think we're safe in assuming that the vast majority of our culture is rejecting the authority of Christ and the authority of his word because it interferes with their sexual freedoms. Would you agree with that? Even if, even if they say there's no God because I want to live this way, or if they say there could be a God, but I want to live this way, or if they say, I know there's a God, but I still want to live this way, it all comes down to this huge obstacle of repentance that is actually submitting your life to the authority of Christ. And so that's where these men were. But unlike the atheist and the agnostic who rejected the belief in God, the religious leaders that we are about to see in the story, they're all believers in God. However, they are simply rejecting the authority of Jesus to rule in their lives. There are some who believe that there is a God, but yet they still reject Jesus as having full authority in their life. And this there's a book uh, written by Craig Rochelle, pastor out in Oklahoma, and he, he wrote it, and it's called The Christian Atheist. And this is what he said. It's, a Christian atheist is someone who believes in God but lives as though he doesn't exist. It's someone who believes in God but lives as though he's not really going to tell me what to do. He's not really going to have authority in my life. So the obstacle everyone has to get past is whether or not they're willing to live in total submission to the authority of Jesus. And that is where we pick up in Scripture. So let me pray for us, and I'll show you three ob uh, objects that get in the way. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Guys, we get into your word this morning, I would ask that you would just lead and guide by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit 
lead and guide us to understanding. That you would reveal things in your word that, that you want to reveal in our hearts so that there would be a life change. Father, if there's obstacles that we need to get past that are keeping us from submitting to your authority, God, expose those today in our hearts so that we can repent and we can turn to you. Lord, I pray for this church that we would be a light in a dark world, that as we leave this place and we go back into the community, the community would be different because of the presence of your spirit within us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first obstacle of repentance is the rejection of God's authority for group acceptance. One of the main things that keeps us from really submitting to God is we care what other people think about us. We, really, we, we want to be accepted. We want group acceptance. And, and these guys, they kind of run into this as Jesus begins to ask them this question in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me, or it should be there on the screen. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, Jesus refers back to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, he was like this renegade, right? He, he was out in the wilderness, and he was wearing, you know, animal clothes, and he was eating honey and locusts, and he was preaching repentance, and, and he was kind of doing it different than what the religious leaders were doing. And so Jesus is saying, okay, I'll answer this question if you answer a question for me. And so he brings up John, the baptism that he was doing, the preaching he was doing of repentance. So picking up verse 27, or in verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. You ever do that? You, don't, you know what, what you need to say, and you don't want to be get called out on it, and so you just go, I don't know. I don't, that's what these guys, I, I don't know. And so Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. Jesus is teaching these scribes that you either live in submission to the Son or you live in submission to your sin. So basically when he brings up John the Baptist, he's bringing up this teaching of repentance, this teaching of, that led to baptism. He's saying, look, the reason that John the Baptist was out there preaching repentance is he was preaching to the Jews that, look, you need to repent of the sin that's in your life. And they were like, well, look, Jews don't repent. Jews don't do that stuff. That's what Gentiles do. Gentiles are the sinners. They're not the ones that have been God's people all of these generations. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you want to know by what authority I teach you, and then you're going to have to go all the way back to John. And you're going to have to see that there is either a submission to Jesus in repentance, or there's a submission to continue in the sin that you're in. It comes down to this choice of authority. Therefore, if you resist Christ's authority in your life, you resist repentance in your heart. This was an issue. Jesus' authority was an issue that came up quite often. As we got into the Gospel of Mark, we saw this pop up in Mark chapter 1, verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus had an authority when he taught. He didn't teach just like one of the scribes. He didn't teach like somebody who had been in the synagogue and gone to seminary or cemetery like I did. You know, like, no? Okay. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like that. He taught, and he taught like it was real, like it was really the words of God coming out of his mouth. And so they're like, who teaches like this? Not only that, Mark 20, uh, 127. 
And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Not only does he teach like he is teaching the actual word of God, but all he has to do is say a word, and the supernatural, the demonic, they actually listen to him. This guy is different. There's something so different about the authority that he brings. He teaches like he's teaching the word of God, like he wrote it. And not only that, he can speak to, to the demonic and they listen. In Mark 2, 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Not only does Jesus have authority to teach like he wrote scripture, not only does he have authority to cast out demons, but Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. By what authority do you do these things? Now, they're asking this question because Jesus had just come in there and flipped tables, right? He, he said he got a, a whip and he started whipping people. And you're like, that's, that's my kind of Jesus, right? That's tough Jesus. I love tough Jesus. Not, you know, not blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that's all like sweet and innocent, right? I like, I like carrying a whip Jesus. And that's, that's the Jesus. They're like, all right, who gives you authority to come in with whips and just flip over tables and knock money in the floor and do all these things? Who gave, who gave you this permission? He was like, look, let me tell you about authority. I have authority, but I'm not going to tell you where it's coming from. Every single person on earth has to come to the decision to either resist Christ's authority or repent and submit to Christ's authority. What obstacle stands in the way of that for you? Is there an area in your life right now that you're not allowing Christ to have authority in? And, and the way I can say that is, maybe there's an area in your life right now that, you res, that you're resisting him on because you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to actually change. Oh, I, I acknowledge that there's a Jesus. I acknowledge that he has authority. I acknowledge that he has his word. But maybe there's an area in my life that I'm just not really willing to give him complete authority over. The question is, does he have authority in your life to come in and flip tables if he needs to? Verse 29. He said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. Luke tells us a, a little bit more into this story in Luke's gospel, verse 6 of chapter 20. But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. So these religious leaders, they're thinking, look, we're caught. If we say that, that he was, he's not a prophet, then they're going to kill us. So out of fear of man, we're not going to submit to God. Isn't this interesting that sometimes we're trapped? We're trapped in that same thing. Like we don't really want to submit because if we submit, then people are going to persecute us. If we submit to authority, then people are going to say things about us. If we submit to God in, in this area of authority, then we're going to be rejected by culture. They're going to say that we're, that we're insensitive. You see, they were trapped between admitting that they should have listened to John or facing the wrath of people for admitting their doubts about John as a prophet. They were trapped. They were trapped. They were ensnared. And what's What's interesting is Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
They cared more, they cared more about group acceptance than they did about Christ's authority. If we care more about group acceptance, if we care more about what other people think of us than we do Christ's authority in our life, we're trapped. We're ensnared. We're, we're caught up in the obstacle that keeps us from repentance. An obstacle to repentance is caring more about what others think of you than you do what God has called you to do. Can I tell you I've been guilty of that? There's been times in my life where I've cared way more about what other people think of me than I've, than I've cared about what God has called me to do. And, and I'll, I'll just be honest with you. There are times where I care more about what you think of me than what God's called me to do. The fear of man. It's a trap. It keeps you from repentance. It keeps you from submitting to his authority. Repentance is more than remorse. You can't just feel sorry for it. It it requires an action. Repentance is submitting to Christ's lordship and his authority. Repentance results in an act of changing your attitude and action when they are resisting his authority and living in rebellion to his word. Repentance is more than just feeling sorry. It's an action. He asked, hey, uh, when John the Baptist came and he began to preach repentance and baptism, was that from man or was that from God? Oh, we're trapped. Because if we say it's from God, then we have to admit that we need to repent. If we say it's from God, then, then we say that we, we need to change something about our lives. Verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Acts 13, 24 says it this way. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. The obstacle for these religious leaders was the fact that if they agreed with the baptism of John, then they agreed with the need for repentance. And not only that, that Jesus was the Messiah that John preceded. I'll tell you by what authority. They knew that if they answered that John was from God, that they were admitting that Jesus was also from God. And they just couldn't do it. Romans, Paul talks about our rebellion. And in in chapter 8, verse 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is is remarkable. Paul says, look, if your mind is stuck on, on you, if your mind's set on your authority, on what you want, what you feel, then you are hostile towards God. We resist his lordship and his authority, and we refrain from repenting because we don't want to change. We're hostile. Tim Keller, this is, this is a beautiful way he puts it. It takes the Holy Spirit to see that sin is not just a violation of rules. Because we can all agree that there are times where we go against God's word, and we know we did, and there's no remorse and there's no repentance. All I did was break a rule. Now, some of you, I've used this illustration before. Some of you, you broke the rule today coming to church. Maybe you left the house a little bit late and you had to make up for it with the pedal. You know what I'm saying? You broke the rule. Did you feel remorse? No, because you didn't get caught. I don't know. If you got a ticket, please raise your hand. No, no tickets today. Uh, You know, we don't feel remorse for breaking rules. But a whole attitude of resentment towards Christ claim over your life. When we see that we are hostile towards God in our rebellion, 
It doesn't matter what the group thinks about us. It doesn't matter about group acceptance. It doesn't matter about the fear of man. When we come to a point where we realize by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we are hostile towards God in our heart, that leads us to repentance. So, second thing is this. The second obstacle of repentance is the rejection of God's authority for greedy acquisition. Now, this is where Jesus begins to teach. And he's going to kind of shift gears and he starts to teach in parables. And so we're going to cover some parables. He only covers one parable in the Gospel of Mark. He covers three parables in the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to cut the difference and we're going to cover two parables this morning. How about that? Sounds good. Okay, Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12. The second obstacle of repentance is the rejection of God's authority for greedy acquisition. Mark chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And leased it to the tenants and went into another country. And the season came. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And they killed. And him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Verse seven, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. Jesus begins to tell this parable that's oddly familiar to Isaiah chapter 5. And so these religious leaders, these Sanhedrin, these keepers of the law, they would have known exactly what he was saying. And so as Jesus begins to tell this parable, but he puts a little bit of a twist on it, he's actually predicting the future. It's a prophetic parable, right? He's saying, look, this is the history of Israel. We sent uh, servant after servant after servant, and they were killed. And God's going to send his son, and you're going to do the exact same thing because you don't want to submit to his authority. Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 2 says this, let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Jesus is telling a, a variation of this story where Isaiah is actually prophesying against the people of Israel, telling them, look, you have been a wicked people and, and you're going to get exiled for it. And so Jesus is saying this and he's starting to repeat some history here, but he uses, he uses this and there's a, there's a term here for these wild grapes that is actually uh, translated stink fruit. Don't you like that? Stank fruit. You can call it stank fruit if you want because we're from the South. You know what that is? That's stank fruit right there. You got to say it with that accent. Okay, so, so what they did is they took over the, the vineyard. And they decided to run it the way they wanted to run it. And all they could produce was 
Stank fruit, right? Yeah, there you go. Had to wake you up with stank fruit. The tenants refused to respect the authority of the owner. They just refused. It didn't matter who came. They, they weren't going to respect his authority. They decided to treat the land as if it was their own. But all they could produce was stinky fruit that looked like grapes, but was not edible. Sometimes we think we can do things on our own. That's why we sang the song, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. Because all we can do on our own is produce a stank fruit. Oh, it can look good on the outside. We can appear to be religious. We can appear to follow all the rules. But if our hearts are not changed, we're not able to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So when the season came, he sent servants to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit. So who's the fruit for? It's for the owner. I think that's remarkable. Fruit is always for God. The fruit of the Spirit is always for God in His glory. And yet sometimes we think, look at what God's given me. Look at what He's blessed me with. I'm just going to use it for me. I'm just going to keep it all for myself. And we become greedy with our lives. I want control of my life. I want to run things the way I want to run them. And that becomes an obstacle towards repentance. Because we no longer respect the owner of the vineyard, the one who's given us all the things that he's given us. No, I don't want to give back to you. I want to keep it for myself. This is my life. This is what I want to do. Our lives are for God. They are not our own. And we can't be greedy with our life. I'll tell you, a huge obstacle a huge obstacle with submitting our lives to Christ with a blank check, like I said a week or two ago, is greed. It's mine. I worked hard for this. Look at what I have. I'm not going to give it up. Sometimes we refuse to have, let Christ have authority in our life because we're greedy. Look at that. It, he goes into this history lesson. He says, they beat, they struck, they killed, they beat, they killed. They did this over and over and over. Jesus is giving them a history lesson. According to history, Jeremiah was beaten on multiple occasions and thrown into a pit, and he was stoned. These are the prophets. Elijah and Amos, they were banished and forced to hide in caves. Ezekiel was murdered after a sermon. Don't get any ideas. Habakkuk was stoned by the Jews for living in Jerusalem. Zechariah got chased into the temple and stoned near the altar. Uriah, who prophesied during the same time as Jeremiah, he tried to escape into exile, but the king tracked him down, brought him back to Israel, and ran him through with a sword. Isaiah, as history tells us, was placed into a log, and they cut the log in half. These are the prophets. These are the servants that were sent year after year after year to Israel to say, look, you're God's people, but you're living wickedly. You're not living as if God has authority over your life. You're chasing after idols. You're, you're allowing yourself to be pulled away to other loves. And they killed him. And so God said, well, I have one more to send. What if I send my son? Surely they'll respect him. Verse 8. And they took him. And they killed him. And they threw him out into the vineyard. What did they do with the son? They killed him too. This is Jesus saying to these religious leaders, look, you're no better than your ancestors. You, you think you've reached some religious intellectual level, but you're still wicked in your heart. 
you still reject the Son. An obstacle of repentance is this. Most rejection of Jesus' authority is rooted in a desire for control. The desire of greedy acquisition. Most of our rejections of his authority is due to our wanting to be in control. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. You see, one of the dangers of religious behavior is that we can keep the blind, we can become blind to the reality of our hearts because we're doing so many good things. Those of us who grew up in the church, we've learned how to curve our behavior to a point that causes us to produce stinky fruit. The stinky fruit of religious actions. And really the result of that is wickedness in the heart. Oh, we can look good on the outside. We can produce stink fruit, stank fruit, however you want to say it. But really what's going on in our heart is rebellion. And that's an obstacle of repentance. Because after all, what we learn from the story is fruitlessness is wickedness. Wickedness. Third thing, last thing is this. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus tells another parable. The third obstacle of repentance is the rejection of God's authority for good appearance. We like group acceptance. We like greedy acquisition. We want to be in control. And really, we just think we're good. We have really good appearance. So Jesus tells another parable. He tells this parable to predict the future as well. Matthew chapter 22, 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. So you've got these servants, again, coming out, and they're, they're being killed. But the vast majority are just too busy. They're just too busy to come to the wedding feast. The king was angry. Verse 7. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. You know, Jesus, he says to these religious leaders, look, you're going you're gonna to do the same thing. You're going to kill the son. And in he, this verse, he says, look, there's judgment that's coming. In 70 AD, the Romans did come in and they did wipe out Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now get this. This is predicting the future as well. Look, it was for Israel. It was for the Jews, but they rejected. They killed the servants. They killed the Son of God. And now I want you to go out and I want you to invite everybody you can find to the wedding feast. I want to send out my church on mission to tell everybody about Jesus Christ because one day there's going to be a feast and we're all going to be gathered together, both good and bad. Isn't that awesome? And so this is what he's saying. He's like, this is the future. It was for the Jews and now it's for the Gentiles. 
Verse 11. But when the king came and looked at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him to the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Here's the main obstacle of repentance is thinking that you fit in here on earth with believers because of good works. That's an obstacle. We think we fit in because of good works. We think we look like everyone else because we are doing what everyone else is doing. But if Christ does not have authority in our lives, we've not submitted to him. And I think that's the, that's the whole point. Jesus is telling another parable to say, look, there are many who have been called, but they refuse. There are many who have been called to come to him, but they're wicked. And then this guy sneaks in. You're not, you're not wearing the, the right clothes. Jesus is telling this parable to teach about his authority and rejection. Because if we reject the authority of Christ now, he will reject us later. Matthew 10, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before the Father who is in heaven. There's a grim reality to this. That salvation is through submitting to complete the complete authority of Jesus Christ. It's not just looking good. It's not just following the rules. It's complete surrender. These religious leaders wouldn't do it. They just couldn't bring themselves to the point of realizing they needed to repent because they cared more about what the group thought. They had greedy acquisition. No, I want to be in control. And they really thought that they looked good. We look better than everyone else. But when the king came and he looked at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He found himself clothed in works righteousness and not gifted righteousness, not gift righteousness. There's a big difference. Let me tell you what the difference between these two righteousness are. Work righteousness is the process by which someone wants to be declared righteous in the sight of God. So he's going to live his, uh, his life in such a way that he anticipates and expects that God will be impressed with him and that God will bless him and reward him with heaven. Look, I've been a good person. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've lived. Look at all the good things that I've done. Lord, Lord, surely, don't you know that we did this in your name and we did this in your name and we did this in your name? And he's going to say, but I never knew you. Sure, you had a lot of things that you did. There was a lot of works righteousness that made you look like everyone else, but you never really surrendered your heart to me. You never really surrendered and bowed your knee to the authority of Jesus Christ. Works righteousness is always me-centered. It's always about me. Look at what I'm doing. Works righteousness is always comparison-driven. Well, I better be as good as that person or do what they're doing. And so we're trying to maintain what our Christianity is supposed to look like. Works righteousness is performance-based. And so you feel good when you're doing good, and you feel bad when you're doing bad. Works righteousness is behavior-focused and not heart-focused. And, and here's what I know. Because I grew up in the South in a Baptist church my entire life. For some of us, we are so concerned with the outside and we're not as concerned with 
whether or not God has our heart. We just want to look good. We just want to look like we're playing our part. We just want to look like we fit in with the rest of the church. But have we really submitted our hearts to his authority in all areas of our life? Young people, that, that was my story as a, as a teenager. Sure, I knew Jesus. I'd been taught all the stories about Jesus. I'd heard it my entire life. I prayed a prayer. But I can't tell you you had authority in all areas of my heart. Works righteousness is so me-centered. But thanks be to Jesus Christ for gift righteousness. Gift righteousness is imputed righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness gifted through faith by means of repentance and submission to his authority. It is a gift of God. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It is when you bow your knee and you say, I am all yours. I want, I want to be all in with you. I don't care what the groups say. This is not my life. I'm no longer in control. It's all yours. I'll give back to you whatever you ask. And it's not about me looking good anymore. It's about you radically changing my heart. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is no righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. Gift righteousness is a gift, not a reward. You can't earn it. Gift righteousness is Christ-centered. Gift righteousness is grace-based, not works-based. Gift righteousness is fruit-bearing and God-honoring. Gift righteousness, get this, produces a fruit. It produces a fruit that when the, when the owner of the vineyard comes back, you freely give. It's all yours. Look at what you've done in my life. Works righteousness says, no, I'll produce a stank fruit, and I'll be happy, and I'll just kind of go along looking like I'm good. Gift, righteousness. Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul, again, Philippians 3, 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul, again, Galatians 3, 27. For as many of you as were baptized, there's that word, into Christ, have put on Christ. See, he comes in, verse 11. The king came in. He looked at the guest and he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, How'd you get in here? How'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The truth of God's word is that there will come a day that if you're not clothed in Jesus Christ, you will be speechless. You'll have nothing to say. But I thought I was good. The question this morning is, does Jesus really have complete authority over your life? Is he allowed to come in and flip tables if he needs to? 
change things up if he needs to? Is there an obstacle of repentance in the way this morning? I think this is where you would do some self-examination. Is there, is there something in my life that keeps me from bowing my knee in this area to God? Is it pride? Is it arrogance? Is it a desire for group acceptance? Is it that I want to be in control? I want what I want. I like what I feel, and I want to do what I want to do. Is it, is it I'm good? I'm, I'm good. What do I have to repent of? I'm a good person. Look at, look at me in comparison to people. These are all obstacles of repentance. If we say no to the Son, if we say no to his authority, Jesus tells us that works righteousness will not be enough to get us eternal life. If we say no to Jesus now, he has no other choice but to say, okay, later. You said you, said you didn't want me. My prayer this morning is that you would see the obstacles that keep you from repentance and that you would be a people of repentance. Martin Luther said all of the Christian life is one of repentance. That means every single day you wake up and you go, I know that there's an obstacle. And I know this obstacle is keeping me from making you Lord, having complete authority in this area of my life right now. And so I surrender it to you. So it's my prayer that you would do that this morning, that you would maybe bow a knee, that you would stand and sing a song, but you would sing it with your eyes fixed on Jesus because he is your only hope. But my prayer is that we would be a church that responds a church that worships, a church that repents, a church that bows their knee to Christ and his authority. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.